Hello, dear listeners, especially you wonderful patrons who make this possible. I have some good news to report, as you may have heard in the first episode of the Global Far Right miniseries, um, that I was at a bit of a crossroads in deciding whether I could afford to continue the show at all. Well, I have to say that the target I set for last month in terms of new patrons and support is looking like it's um, very much on track for a one-month target. We're definitely not out of the way yet, but on our way. Certainly buying the show some time. If I can keep up this momentum and get enough subscribers in the next couple of months, I can absolutely see polite conversations sticking around. So I don't want to overstate anything, but I am cautiously optimistic. Thank you so much to everyone who became a patron, to those who upped their pledge to the new premium tier, which offers a lot of exclusives and much earlier access to things. It really, really means a lot. If you are listening and not a patron yet, please do consider becoming one if you enjoy the show and would like to see it continue because it really is still currently at risk of uh, shutting down if we don't have enough subscribers. And another way you can support the show is by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All these things help more people to find the show. This new miniseries will primarily be available on the premium tier, so if you want full access, early access, do sign up via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. Now, as for the upcoming conversation in this episode, um, that happened on October 6th about a week or so before the general elections in New Zealand, so we left not knowing what would happen. Byron, my guest, later sent me a voice memo after the fact, so we can hear a brief message from him about the results at the end of the episode. Also, this conversation took place just before the tragic events of October 7th and what's been unfolding ever since, so that is why you won't hear us discuss or reference those events. Anyway, it was nice to re-listen to this chat as I was editing and think about something different. I have my guests for the next couple of episodes in this miniseries in place. Hopefully some more great episodes will come your way in the next little while. I have really, really enjoyed researching and producing this miniseries so far, and I think in the current political situation, now more than ever, it's important to have a wider, more global perspective on things. Anyway, here we go. Enjoy. The conditions in the past few years have been a perfect storm for extremism, is a terrorist attack, hate, the transgender community, and conspiracy theories to flourish around the world. Join me as I try to learn more one country at a time. In another Polite Conversations miniseries, this time exploring the global far right. Hello and welcome to episode two of my brand new miniseries on the global far right. Today I'll be talking about uh, what's going on in New Zealand with author Byron C. Clark. He wrote the excellent book Fear. I've been reading it myself and uh, I can't put it down. It's There's so much familiar in there even though I've never been to New Zealand, but, like, the themes are all the same. So how are you doing, Byron? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, thanks.
thanks so much for coming on. Um, where can people find your book? If you're living in New Zealand, you can get it uh, at all good bookstores. If you're in Australia, you can get it um, most bookstores. And if you're elsewhere in the world, the paperback's a bit harder to come by, but you should be able to get the ebook in anywhere. Anywhere you usually buy ebooks. And if you really want the paperback, there are a few New Zealand and Australia-based uh, retailers who will ship internationally. But you'll pay a lot for shipping, so I'd recommend getting the ebook if you're if you're in North America or Europe or wherever. Right. Right. And that's called Fear again. So do check it out, everyone. And now let's uh, let's get into it. How are things in New Zealand? Well, um, we're as we record this, we're a week out from from a general election. Um, I've just been reading this morning actually about. Um, how the uh, so-called freedom movement has been trying to get influence in parliament through taking over existing political parties and unfortunately having a little bit of success with that. So that's that's kind of where things are at politically right now. Yeah, I guess by the time I release this episode, the election will have happened. So mm. good luck with that. And uh, yeah, I was just reading your book and it struck me like how familiar so many of the talking points of the far right in New Zealand are, really. It just seems like everywhere you look now, they're echoing many of the same things, right? There's like a theme of anti-immigration, anti-immigrant stuff, and the specifically anti-Muslim stuff, mm. where they're fear-mongering about, you know, great replacement. And uh, now, more recently, there's the anti-trans stuff. And, mm. you know, it's it's the same. Yeah, I, I think they're seeing really the same, same talking points all over the world. Uh, Especially the English-speaking world, but even even other countries, um, mm -hmm. there's podcasts here where they'll get uh, MPs from like the Netherlands and, and places on uh, in English to you know talk about what they're doing. Yeah, it's the same same sort of ideology just spreading around the world and yeah, reaching places as far flung as New Zealand here at the bottom of the world. Yeah, yeah, and you know you've had quite uh, the experience it seems with the far right over there, and they've personally stalked and harassed and come after you to quite a great degree. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So I um I've been I've been a political activist in one sense or another. You know, since the since going on anti-war marches when I was a teenager, but um, specifically looking at the far right is something that I've focused on really since the uh, mass shooting at a mosque here in, in Christchurch where I live. And after that, I started to make video essays on YouTube, looking mostly at some of our like local far right influences. You know, people who had had YouTube channels and and so forth. And yeah, that got fairly significant backlash. Um, I was uh, followed home from an event by a young member of a, a white nationalist group, and then my address where I was staying at that time was shared with, with others, started to get things in the letterbox, you know, printouts from some of the Facebook pages these groups had just to show me, like, hey, look, we, we know where you live. And then probably... The biggest escalation was when one of these people, a local YouTube personality called Lee Williams, who goes by the name Cross the Rubicon on YouTube, he actually turned up at my workplace, um, gave a fake name at the door, came in with his camera, started filming me, which some listeners might be familiar with uh, Tommy Robinson in the UK using mm -hmm. this tactic to intimidate his critics. And Williams is from the UK originally and, a, and a, you know, a big fan of Robinson, so I think he was you know emulating this. Um, and yeah, that had, a, that had a pretty significant impact on my life. 
life because of course the the goal of that was to you know try and get me to lose my job so after that the company I worked for started getting hate mail started getting a lot of one-star reviews on uh, Google and Facebook became worried about you know threats of violence to the office that you know could affect not just me but other staff there yeah it was a <laughs> it was a pretty significant time this is how i was targeted before the book was even out you know i write about this in the book um, just from just from doing youtube and and the occasional article and and so forth and and being a bit of a commentator in, in the news um so things would escalate after i appeared on tv or radio because uh the idea really was to you know shut me up stop me from speaking so the the targeting would happen after i was speaking publicly about this on youtube or on television mm-hmm. or, or wherever yeah. that sounds terrifying i'm so sorry you had to go through that and i hope it's uh, calmed down a lot since then uh, it has calmed down a bit you know uh, three civil court cases later um, oh. we don't uh, we don't really have laws against stalking in new zealand um it's something that depending on how the election goes we might get some laws but we do have we do have a thing called the harmful digital communications act where you can have a civil case against somebody if their digital communications like what they're doing online if that can be shown to be causing you significant distress and so i've taken a couple of civil court cases under that and one under the harassment act for like a more restraining order for someone and that's something that i've done not really just for myself but also because without doing something like this um the the lesson the far right takes is that there'll be no legal consequences for mm-hmm. you know doing things like turning up at someone's workplace and that has this chilling effect where more people will be afraid to speak out so mm-hmm. yeah so taking those court cases was trying to show that hey there will be consequences if you accost someone at their workplace or at their home or whatever right right yeah well i hope they get like the harshest consequences that they can but i don't think that'll stop them and this all started when you what you were just monitoring like their facebook groups and you tweeted out some screenshots of the kinds of things they were posting yeah yeah so like i said i did the youtube channel but i got a much bigger following on on twitter where i I'd show people what was being posted and shared, often asking people to you know, report certain things, um, particularly on YouTube, where things will often slip through the cracks for moderation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly mm-hmm. in you know, a small country like this. I, I think that YouTube isn't getting a significant pushback to New Zealand-based far-right content creators because they only have a few thousand subscribers, which globally isn't significant, but... You know, and here they can be quite significant um, figures with a relatively small following. So getting people to report videos, and then that would that would cause the people uploading these videos to then target me because they worried that their influence was at risk by you know me uh, getting people to report their videos. So yeah, for for some of these people, it does not take much to really set them off. Right, and it's like the irony of them framing themselves as free speech warriors and. You you know, anti-snowflake when really they embody everything that they complain about the left doing, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I get annoyed at some of the sort of so-called free speech advocates we have here as well. The people who aren't, you know, necessarily in agreement with 
what's the far right, but will defend their free speech and mm-hmm. then say nothing about the way the far right is using these threats of violence and intimidation to mm-hmm. silence the speech of their critics. And you know, I think that's a free speech issue as well. But we don't we don't hear so much about that from our so-called free speech advocates. Right, right. Like in a North American context, the IDW is is basically like uh, the epitome of that, right? Or mm. was. They would um, complain about anyone criticizing people who use the N-word or, you know, just really offensive racist things. But then when, like, a left-wing professor got fired for something, they wouldn't, you'd never hear from them. Yeah, similar similar situation here. Um, yeah, we there's a group called the Free Speech Union who are a sort of astroturf group. Um, she has a, has um, a lot of the same members as a thing called the Taxpayers Union, who are a kind of right wing libertarian lobby group. And um, yeah, they they did a survey of academics and put out this press release about you know wokeness and academics afraid to say things. But you know they'll they'll do nothing say nothing about you know people being targeted by the far right as you know as several academics in this country have for speaking at conferences and things and then they'll get targeted and the universities will be mm-hmm. inundated with emails telling them to fire them and and yeah the free speech union doesn't talk about that but they talk about people being afraid to say non-woke things to their class or you know and and it's it's pretty transparent that it's it's not really about free speech it's about anti-wokeness and they're using mm. free speech as a way to organize rather than a more principled stand yeah yeah it's absolutely not principled and what they choose to focus on is very telling right if you start looking at the patterns it only swings one way so mm. yeah um there seems to be like overlaps between not just like the far right around the world but like also a lot of the stuff that you see from centrist pundits in North America or like even from my earlier on the internet days the new atheist circles like the overlaps in those talking points are really um fucking scary to me because Mm. I was like I was in that you know I was a Sam Harris fan, and I was a new atheist, and yes, people around me always used to talk about the Islamization of UK and Sharia law, and coming from Saudi Arabia myself, it didn't strike me as a dog whistle, because if you are oppressed by... You know, if all the right-wingers in your country are Muslims and they're oppressing you, then (laughs) it's going to be like, it's going to sound good at first when other people are criticizing them. But then you look at it on a more, like, world stage context, and it is definitely troubling because it's all about the anti-immigrant and the, oh, those brown people are barbaric kind of trope, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and any any uh, seemingly progressive stance that these people take, um, you know, whether it's you know claiming to be supporting women's rights or mm-hmm. or whatever, I mean, it's just a, a cover really for for a kind of xenophobia. Yes. and and I think Muslims have really been targeted. I remember one one Facebook page that I followed that's that's gone now, but they had a pin post at the top 
uh, and it was a meme that said, uh, you know, you can't be racist against Islam because Islam isn't a race. And it was this, this yes. kind of way of like hiding, hiding a xenophobia towards, <sighs> you know, these, these people from, you know, from the Middle East and North Africa and, yeah. and parts of Asia as well. And like, but hiding it behind this supposed critique of a uh, religious ideology when it wasn't really about that. It was, you know, it was about, foreigners and that's um right that's how they that's how they could uh make it more socially acceptable and i can't tell you how many times i heard those lines like from you know richard dawkins Mm. or sam harris who are supposed to be like these rational sort of they claim to be on the left right Mm. and they fool a lot of people they seem to rope in a lot more people that people on the far right would not be able to. Yeah, yeah, it appeals to a bit of a different audience, and but similar talking points, yeah. Exactly. That way, the Islamophobia, the anti-immigrant sentiment, the anti-BLM, the transphobia kind of gets pushed on a group that would probably recognize it for what it is if it was coming from, like, Mm. Tucker Carlson or other people on the far right. Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes from these, like, rational men of science, it gets, like, a shiny new packaging. Mm. And, um, yeah, the theme of Islam really strikes a personal chord with me because, you know, for anyone that might be listening that hasn't listened to my content. I am an ex-Muslim that grew up in Saudi Arabia. I had a brief uh, year or two in the new atheist scene where I was super, like, mad at religion. And uh, growing up in a theocracy can do that to you, but then hopefully once things start to calm down and you're like, yes, yes, I can, like, now see things more clearly rather than just through that angry lens, then you look at these new atheists and just like how you were saying that so many of these things are just a cover for their xenophobia. Mm. They're anti-feminist like so much of the time while they went on and on about how um, they just wanted to help Muslim women, right? Mm. Or um, their critiques of Islam very quickly turn into great replacement theory or, uh, you know, general anti-migrant sentiment calling them like all kinds of horrible things. Like Sam Harris praised conversations from Tommy Robinson where he basically spouted white supremacist tropes like so clearly, like these Somali men are coming to rape our women. And uh, Sam Harris was, you know, not only praising that, but also promoting that and retweeting that back in the day. So, Mm. yeah, that's why the Islam stuff really uh, scares me because I could have kind of gotten taken into it because, you know, being made to wear a burqa by religious morality police uh, while I was growing up was not something I liked. And, you know, being told that women were like second class citizens was also not something I liked. So obviously when I moved out of Saudi, I had a lot of uh, anger towards religion. But (laughs) And so that's how they get a lot of ex-Muslims on side, though. Right, I don't know how closely or if you're familiar at all with new atheist dynamics. Yeah, somewhat, yeah. But they love bomb a lot of the ex-Muslims. Like, the more painful the story, like Ayan Hirsi Ali, the more they will, you know, enthusiastically embrace someone, give them a lot of attention, platforms. And some people, you know, get 
really swayed by that. And then Mm. they start spouting more and more. They become like the token immigrant, anti-immigrant. So like, as an example, Ayan Hirsi Ali did a book. I think it's called Prey, like P-R-E-Y. Oh, I think I've seen that one, yeah. Yeah. It's all about, like, literally her words are like black and brown men coming to Europe to, I don't know, rape women or something like Mm -hmm. that. So it's pretty blatant how they become. And, like, now there's, like, another theme of, like, the anti-hijab activists crossing over with, like, the turfs. Ah, yes, yeah. But that's enough from me. Let's hear more from you. Sure. What I did want to ask you about is like ripple effects from like American politics, Canadian politics. I know you guys had like a big anti-vax, anti-lockdown scene as well. Like we had that whole Canadian trucker thing. Yeah. So that that was quite influential on the um, the so-called freedom movement here. When a few influences in that space called for a a convoy to Parliament, there was very little actual organising needing to be done because the audience had been watching what was happening in Ottawa and a similar thing was happening in Canberra, Australia, um, again influenced by, by Canada. And so as soon as there was this call out for a convoy to Parliament, people people knew like, oh yeah, we're doing we're doing what the Canadian truckers are doing. And they, they tried to frame it as a trucker convoy, but there were very few actual truckers here because uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't exactly the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um because there's, you know, there's no border here that truckers can cross, being an island. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have the, you know, vaccine passed across a border thing. But the, yeah, certainly all the anti-vaxxers and assorted other conspiracy theorists started piling in their cars and driving from both ends of the country to to the capital, which is roughly in the middle. And um, yeah, and the the influence of. Uh, Canada was pretty obvious because some people even brought along Canadian flags to like show their <laughs> solidarity with the Canadian That's so wild. Canadian truckers and the Prime Minister at the time that said you know it looks looks like a you know foreign protest because there were Canadian flags and there were Trump campaign flags and um, you know there were there were New Zealand flags as well but there was this this sort of mix of um, you know flags from different countries where they were having protests or Trump campaign flags to sort of show this international solidarity of this movement. Wow. And like, you know, during the early years of the pandemic, so many people in Canada were admiring uh, New Zealand and Australia, handling it so well and Mm. keeping the rates really low and essentially having like very little lockdown time because the rates were so low. Yeah, um, we had a you know a couple of um, quite strict lockdowns, but compared to what what's had in some other countries, they were they were relatively short. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and pretty soon we were back to yeah, you know, we were one of the few countries having having music festivals during the pandemic because right. um, you know we kept COVID out for, uh, but yet you know the, there's a you know crowd here who will talk about the tyranny of of the you know the last prime minister and, um, mm. because we had these short lockdowns and and you know and and other restrictions there and you know, different different groups would be conceptualizing this in different different ways I've, I've got a chapter in the book on uh, on the Christian right and there was a there was a big pushback from kind of evangelical Protestants who believed that anything the government did which inhibited their ability to worship was you know an affront to God so there was a you know significant evangelical wing of this movement who opposed lockdowns that stopped them going to church or even gathering limits that 
restricted how many people could be in a church or requiring a vaccine pass to go into a, a building like yeah. that. So there were all these different groups who, um, for various reasons, conceptualised our pandemic response as as tyranny. And so there was that uh, that Christian side of it, and then there were you know the sort of anti United Nations, anti globalism conspiracy theorists who saw <laughs> you know saw the World Health Organization as being this you know tyrannical globalist uh, cartel or whatever. Um, yeah, and those and they all then yeah came together when we had this convoy to Parliament, and uh, which turned into an occupation uh, that lasted about three weeks. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, that's mm. pretty significant for a country that didn't even lock down for as long as a lot of countries, and had a fairly regular mm. time in the early pandemic when so many other countries were suffering. So it's just bizarre to me that there would be so much pent up anger mm. about that, you know. But I guess Canada did not set a good example. <laughs> I, I do apologize. Yeah. <laughs> But I also saw, like, talking about the overlaps with American politics, that there's a uniquely New Zealand version of MAGA, which um, I guess some influencers printed hats and T-shirts of, called Make Our Dern Go Away. Yeah, so they they looked at the, you know, American campaign slogan and realized they could use the initials for a, a, you know, New Zealand slogan. Mm. And there was one... Yeah, one influencer who printed these, well, had had them printed by some outfit in China, the, these uh, caps, like the Trump campaign caps that said, but they said, you know, MAGA, make mm-hmm. our don't go away, and he did bumper stickers and things, and... Uh, yeah, and this guy, I'm not, I'm not sure even how strongly he believes some of this stuff, or whether it's just a bit of a grift, um, you know. But um, he's still going now. I mean, not with the, not with the hats, but with, uh, you know, promoting a lot of anti-government stuff. So I guess perhaps he is a bit of a, a true believer. Um, his latest thing, though, is um, he he spends much of the year in Thailand and is only in New Zealand for for the summer, and he's now trying to help people, you know, leave the West and immigrate to a place like Thailand, you know, uh, escape tyranny by going to a country with an absolute monarchy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's... There's so much stuff that's so hypocritical and so ridiculous Mm. on the right that it's just... um, It's hard to even take seriously because it's just so beyond ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Um, It's like they know they're being hypocrites and they don't Mm. care. Yeah, surely. (laughs) Surely they know this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the anti-globalist, anti-UN, anti... What did I see? Jordan Peterson, very angry about Antifa not calling out the World Economic Forum. It's like, no, dude. Like, Antifa doesn't really care about them or not exactly a fascist organization. You know, whatever, whatever legitimate critiques that you can have. no, but they're also not like Antifa's favorite organization that they're going to be defending them mm. purposely and like not calling them because he was like, oh yeah, well I noticed that you didn't call them out or something ridiculous like that, and it's like yeah, Antifa known for your love of the world economic mm. forum. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because they are actually utilizing like this global sort of playbook themselves while they're screeching about globalism Mm. and uh, the UN and anything that has world in the title. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I, I write a bit about the uh, you know WEF conspiracy theories, and and this was you know you go back a couple of decades, and this this was a target of of sort of far left anti globalization protesters, and and this is yeah this is an organisation of. I hate using the word elite because it can be such a dog whistle, yeah, but, yeah. It, but it's the, you know, it, it is the the leaders in like global business and and so on, and and um, there's been this weird pivot in recent years from the kind of left wing counter globalization sort of movement that existed in like the late 90s and 2000s mm-hmm. to to now the opposition to the WEF coming from these right wing conspiracy theorists who think the WEF is going to lock us in our 15 minute cities and make us eat insect protein and and all this ridiculous stuff like that yeah can you tell me a little bit more about that like where are they getting this from because like especially the insect thing yeah i mean it's it's uh it's such a bizarre bizarre one because um i think they've essentially extrapolated from there have been news articles and things about how you know insect proteins could be could be a food source in the future. I mean, they they already are. There's a lot of a lot of countries um, that, right. yeah, where people do do eat um, insect protein um, as part of their diet, but it's you know it's not uh, not common in the Western diet. Uh, and there are organisations you know and businesses who are saying, hey, this could be the next big food, and they're saying this is how we could feed the world with with climate change and a growing population. And that's been extrapolated into the globalists are going to make you eat bugs, you know, and they're going to uh, you know they're going to ban. I mean. So particularly here where New Zealand's economy is very agriculture-driven and the farming sector is, is quite powerful, mm-hmm. uh, especially the dairy industry. So there's this real backlash against environmentalism that encourages things like you know plant-based diets or alternative mm. proteins. So you get this, you know, the globalists want us to, they want to ban cows and they want to make us eat bugs or eat, make us all go vegan or whatever, which, you know, a minority, I guess, of the environmental movement may be advocating for everyone to go vegan. But really, um, the World Health Organization and the UN are not going to be banning cows anytime soon. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But in no way either has this been like a very widespread sentiment. Like it's mm. probably just been like a couple articles here and there at random ones it's not like a big movement as far as i know yeah yeah exactly and most of the push for it that i've seen has come from you know these these startups who who you know want to create you know future proteins it's it's um these businesses rather than governments or supranational organizations that are that are advocating for this you know i think the what was it the unfao uh, food agriculture organization they, they probably have at various times advocated for having more plant-based foods or, or whatever but they're they're certainly not out there you know with a plan to feed us all our insect protein paste or whatever as we and you know, the 15 minute cities is, is another one which is there was a guardian headline which i think captured it quite well like calling it the insidious socialist plot to allow you to walk to the shops um this um <laughs> this kind of you know urbanist idea of like let's have amenities close to where you live and you know so that neighborhoods will be walkable and we don't need to drive so much this has been conceptualized as, as a kind of tyranny where you know the government's going to make you locked in um to your 15 minute city which, which is your neighborhood you know um and i think because people because people were um you know in these lockdowns during the pandemic and 
and things. I've I've said that if you if you're able to time travel back to like 2018 and say to people, oh, in a couple of years the government is going to, you know force you to stay in your home and they're going to close shops and you won't be you you would sound like a conspiracy theorist so i think people became a bit more open to this conspiracy thinking hmm. during the pandemic and and now we've got people who seriously believe that the globalists are going to um have like climate lockdowns i mean i'm really seeing a lot of pivoting from covid conspiracies to climate change conspiracies mm-hmm. um, with a, the same sort of talking points and so yeah there are there are people who really believe this stuff and and i think if we hadn't had the experience of the pandemic with lockdowns and and so forth maybe people wouldn't be quite as susceptible to to those kind of things but but they are yeah yeah it's definitely opened more people up to the that stuff mm. and uh that's terrifying. Yeah. The QAnon stuff seems to be out of control as well. There was someone in your book that I was reading about, I think Lane Davis. Am I getting the oh, name yes, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. The the Gamergate sort of influencer, is that the one? I think so, but like he yeah. stabbed his father to death and because his dad and him were having an argument and he had called him a racist and a Nazi or something? Yeah, like Nazi, Nazi. Yeah, his father called him a Nazi, and he called his then he called his parents like leftist pedophiles or, or something. I um yes, that was that was a little bit of a late addition to to the book because I I'd, I'd written about um some of what he'd, Lane Davis had written about Gamergate and and how he became a ghostwriter for Milo Yiannopoulos. And as the book was going through its first edit, the editor put a note in. I think you should put in here about how he killed his parents. I'm like, he killed his parents? And I looked it up. I'm like, oh, my God, okay. Oh, yes, this, this just gets much worse. And so, yeah, so I, I included it. But, yeah, that's the trajectory this man went down from, you know, from starting with, like, Gamergate to then believing that, uh, you know, the feminists were influencing the UN to control our video games to then you know every leftist including every left-wing person including his parents is uh, some sort of child molester and and then yeah and then murdering his father it's it's so fucked up it's it's, terrifying it's fucked up yeah it's the only way to describe it yeah that can happen to someone just from like online radicalization like yeah yeah and this guy is from new zealand or what this this guy's this guy's american this guy he's american of course Yeah. yeah Yeah. Uh, no offense to my American <laughs> listeners, but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, then I wanted to talk to you about Molyneux and uh, Lauren Southern's mm. visit to New Zealand in 2018. Uh, Canada definitely did not send its best. <laughs> yeah. So this, this I think, was a pretty significant moment in the development of the far right here because these two obviously had had an audience here otherwise they wouldn't have wouldn't have mm-hmm. made that extra trip from australia to, to come over here i mean it's it's not too far to go if you're already to come to australia but but they needed to have the audience here who would be buying tickets and, and coming to see them speak and by whatever calculation they worked out that they did so and then when they came here they couldn't find a venue that would host them. venues kept cancelling on them and they ended up not actually doing a public talk but they did get media coverage here there was a uh, an interview that went viral because the the journalist who was doing it was pretty unprepared for in- interviewing the far right and um oh, arguably God. arguably let 
let his platform be used by them to promote, you know, their their ideas. Um, he he had a bit of a mea culpa. Um, years later, he made a documentary called um, On Hate, where he looked at the far right in New Zealand and spoke with an expert and, and said, you know, I really I really did this wrong. But yeah, so they they did that and then. I guess grew their influence through here, and also because they were going to be having this public event, you know, you suddenly had more coming together of, of the far right in in public um, for these, you know, protests supporting their free speech rights. So it might have been people who had largely been confined to online spaces now being now being at protests in, in the streets. And you had um, as well a, a group called the Free Speech Coalition start up to you know, raise money for a court case against the Auckland City Council for not providing a venue to these people because one of the venues they tried was uh, run by like a publicly owned corporation owned by the city and they said, well, this is political interference and a lot of the people behind that group, perhaps not necessarily big supporters of Southern and Molyneux, but wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to have a jab at the current mayor um, who they disagreed with politically. Uh, But then others um, who... It would appear um, were supporters of what uh, Molyneux and Southern were saying. I talk a, a bit in the book about Don Brash, who at one point was the leader of the opposition and narrowly missed out on becoming becoming prime minister uh, oh back in two thousand five. But he's had a he's had a political trajectory where he's kind of shifted more and more to the right, and he he was one of the key figures in this uh, free speech coalition. And does he, like, openly state that he's a fan of either of those people, Lauren Southern and Molyneux? Well, he... he he claims not to be not to be a, a fan, not even to know really what they're what they're talking about, but just be a big supporter of of free speech. And I think that's a little disingenuous. So I um, I quote in the book a uh, a speech he he gave. He's, he's been invited to like uh, debates and and speaking events on university campuses by sort of free speech groups or, or right leaning student groups and things and. Um, he, in one of these speeches, talked about how, well, to get to give some context, even when he was the leader of the opposition, and um, and when he was then later, he was later the leader of a smaller, further right party, and now is, is outside Parliament and has a lobby group called Hobson's Pledge, and this group is all about supposedly having having racial equality in in the country, but by by what they mean by racial equality is removing. Anything that's in law to address the issues of colonisation that have affected the indigenous people here. So, oh wow, yeah, th- this country was founded by, by, uh, with a, a treaty between the British Crown and the and the indigenous people who lived here, and that treaty wasn't wasn't honoured for over a century. And then, starting in 1975, it was um, put into law, and and we've been we've been trying to as a, as, an, as a country trying to redress some of the wrongs done by colonisation since then. Um, but people like uh, Brash, and there are many others, including you know many people who will be part of the next government who are saying, you know, this is apartheid, we're having division based on race, mm. and, and so on. So so that's his that's his whole political thing. And when he when he spoke at a university, he spoke about how you know, perhaps some cultures are just better than others. And <laughs> To illustrate this, he started talking about the overrepresentation of Jewish people in 
you know, in business and in, in media, and wow. it's uh, it's you know it's a worrying speech because you think, yeah. wow, this this man was nearly prime minister, and here he is pushing this sort of anti anti Semitic trope of um, you know Jewish people having a you know inherently better culture, and that's why they have more influence in business and media. And, and um, yeah, this was this was then posted to YouTube by someone who I think really liked the uh, anti Semitic connotations of this, so. I think I've gone gone off on a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, this this is one of the people who was in the in the group raising money for uh, a court case on behalf of uh, Southern and Molyneux. So while he claimed to just be about free speech and not even know what they stand for, I mean that that sounds very similar to some of what Molyneux was was pushing when you start talking. I mean, about it sounds very similar to Harris too, who said the same when he defended Molyneux one time on his podcast because he had done a show with a an ex neo nazi Christian Picciolini. I don't know if you if you know this story, but I don't think I know this one, no. Okay, yeah. so he had had a live show with Christian Picciolini and I guess he didn't realize like how openly anti-racist Christian was going to be. So when he talked about things like white privilege to the audience and he uh, harshly criticized Molyneux and he said that he like crosses the line to anti-Semitism sometimes. Or no, he said he crosses Mm. the line to Holocaust denial. He's close to the line or just right by it. Something like that. And on that point, Sam Harris, like, when he released the recording, he got an email from Molyneux that was angry, and uh, Sam Harris, like, very quickly just erased those bits from his audio. And uh, then he said that, you know what? I asked him myself, like, do you deny the Holocaust? And uh, Molyneux said no. But if you actually do the research and you look at some of the things he said, like, he has come very, very close to... uh, you know, and denial isn't just always like, it's a spectrum, right? It's not just like flat yeah, out, no, yeah. that didn't happen. Sometimes it's like minimization or like recently Jordan Peterson was mad at a term. It was called like Holocaust distortion. Oh, and he yes. called it like some woke neologism. Mm. And uh, like, this is what, this is what they don't seem to understand that if it's not like a blatant, yeah, it didn't ever happen, then how can this person be anywhere close to a Holocaust denier? And so Sam spent a lot of time, you know, hating on the now anti-racist activist, ex-neo-Nazi Christian Picciolini, and picking a fight with him, and then defending Stefan Molyneux, whom he claimed to not like and know nothing about. I say, yeah. He also once threatened to quit Patreon when Lauren Southern was deplatformed from there. Oh, yes, I think I did hear about that one, yeah. He put out a whole like episode saying that, you know, I won't tolerate this, and I'm going to leave Patreon, but then he didn't leave Patreon because he learned that she actually did fire flares and almost Mm. caused the loss of life. Um, Like, she fired flares at a migrant boat. Yes, yeah. And, uh, yeah, but he never, like, retracted that message in a proper podcast release. I think he just he just said, like, oh, I'm not quitting. He never mm. really clarified that actually, yes, Lauren Southern is pretty fucking extreme, and I shouldn't have put myself out there defending her. 
So he didn't quit for that, but he did quit when Sargon of Akkad was removed from Patreon for saying the N-word. Oh, yes. <laughs> These are our uh, rational free speech heroes. <sighs> yeah, not so different from your far-right politician. Not so different at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was how our Dern has become like this very hated symbol of evil leftist Marxism or whatever. Like, it's very similar to how Justin Trudeau, who is very, like, milk toast liberal, he's not really much of a serious social justice warrior at all. He just says all the right things. Yeah. But, yeah. uh... I mean, it was... It's more about photo ops for him. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. And it was... I mean, it was, um... I want to say it was kind of bizarre, but I, I think I've kind of... Other people may have seen it as bizarre. Me, me perhaps not so much because I, I've just so used to seeing like centrist politicians being called communists or socialists or whatever. Mm. And, and you know, Ardern was um, very skilled communicator. Well, remains a very skilled communicator. He's just no longer prime minister. Very skilled uh, communicator. Um, very good in a crisis. I mean, we had um, mm-hmm. you know we had the pandemic, of course. We also had the mosque shooting. We had a volcanic eruption on an island here that. No, and, and she dealt with all of those um, situations really well and was, you know, a very popular prime minister, I think, uh, because of, you know, how well she dealt with these, these crises. Um, but politically, you know, she was she was just a, a kind of liberal centrist. There there were no massive shifts in the way in the way the economy yeah. is run or anything like that. It was just sort of more, more of the same kind of centrist neoliberalism that we've had here for the la- last forty years. You know, maybe a few a few tweaks and things. But um, yet she was being called a you know a communist, and supposedly um, New Zealand was on its way to becoming Venezuela or Zimbabwe, which is a <laughs> North know, Korea, I heard. Oh, North Korea, even yeah. And um, I mean, there's one I um, I talk about it a little bit in one chapter of the book. I I, um, I purchased a uh, self-published speculative fiction novel by a local member of the far right who who writes this novel about how by the 2030s um, a woman who's heavily implied to be Ardern but not named in the book is is now like a dictator and has um, implemented. Um, <laughs> You know, all these like authoritarian rules and COVID tracing is mass surveillance and you go to a, a restaurant and they, they only serve halal food and the wait staff call you comrade and it's, it's a really oh, that's amazing. it's a really ridiculous book. But um the author, you know, in the in his forward to it really believes that this is the way the country is heading, which is just so ridiculous because probably not long after it was published um, you know, Ardern stepped down as Prime Minister and, and you know, we're, we're likely to have a change in government when the election happens in a week. But yeah, people people seem to really believe that uh, this liberal centrist was, was actually a communist tyrant and um, and yeah, I think to a lot of people that must have looked really bizarre. Uh, but unfortunately, I've been steeped in this stuff for so long; it didn't look bizarre to me. It just looked like part of the course. But when you step back, yeah, that's... when you step back, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what they do with Trudeau, right? He's such a symbol to them. Like he's making right wingers around the world so mad. Yeah. Like you wonder what he's even done. Like. 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it he hasn't really changed much. It really seems that any any leaders, at least in the West, who aren't sort of pursuing the kind of liberal authoritarianism of the likes of um, you know Trump or uh, Bolsonaro or um, you know, even mm-hmm. you know or Orban in Hungary, people people like this. Anyone who's who's just kind of liberal status quo is now perceived as like communists or whatever. It's it's yeah, it's uh, quite strange, but it's yeah, it's global. I mean, I see. No, not just New Zealanders talking about our doing this way, but um, you know, people in North America, people in the UK, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Trudeau yeah. as well. And yeah, it's you know they they're seen as these kind of roadblocks on on this effort to have like a, a more global authoritarian right in power in, in every country. You know, New Zealand and Canada are seen as these kind of liberal holdouts. Which I guess yeah. there's possibly a little bit of truth to that. I mean, I hope so, but yeah, like yeah. I can't feel secure in in that. Like some of the worst uh, right wing exports to America are from Canada. Yeah, yeah certainly. Yeah. I was watching this clip about how Ardern experienced so much abuse that she had, like, even after she stepped down, she had to have like an extended like group of bodyguards with her because of the level of abuse she faced. Yeah, I mean it's it's really quite um quite intense. Um uh, there's an incident I talk about in the book where some people were protesting when she was visiting a primary school and they were protesting outside about, you know, vaccines and the WEF and whatever and then then afterwards they tried to like you know, ram into her car, uh, well, the car that she was in, and, and things like that. Like, and what? Yeah, and the um, driver had to sort of maneuver, and 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 the people doing this, of course, you know, were videoing it as they were, and like, yeah, we're going to get her. And and you know, we've had uh, we've had sort of other incidents, you know, entirely not just our Dern. Like, um, I don't know if I mention it in the in the book or not, uh, but the day before the mosque shooting and. What what was the timing's a coincidence, but this this event was quite overshadowed by the shooting the next day. But a man yelling about the United Nations uh, punched the co-leader of the Green Party, um, and you know, oh wow, enough to you know have him miss a day of work and have a black eye. You know, not serious injury, but the yeah was was assaulted. And and just now in the election campaign, we've had a young woman from who's a candidate for Te Party Māori with a uh, party, you know, representing uh, indigenous interests, um, and she's had her home invaded, had like, uh, you know, threatening letter left there. Wow. And uh, a candidate for, well, a, a sitting MP who's, you know, running again uh, for the Labour Party was slapped by someone at a candidate's forum. Uh, we're seeing this escalating level of, of violence against politicians, which is really concerning, because we, we used to have, well, uh, arguably, we still do. Uh, very accessible politicians in this country. Um, yeah. You know, it's a small country. If you're if you're in the capital city, you might bump into your bump into MPs while you're out and about. And um, yeah, yeah. Now they're having to have a security detail, uh, which has always been the case for like prime minister, but it's happening for more of them. Um, you know, there's a there's a green another Green Party MP who came to this country as a refugee from Iran when she was when she was a child but she 
for having the audacity of being a migrant woman who should be grateful that you know she was granted asylum and instead is criticizing policies and things she gets an enormous amount of hate and we had a um, the leader of a, a more right-wing party describe her as a, a menace to freedom in a uh, in a radio interview a while back and um, as a result of that she started to get more threats and um, yeah started to have to have a bigger security detail which is not usually the case for like a MP for a small small party but because um, she was being targeted with so much hatred for you know for being a vocal woman from a, a migrant background and also somebody who's often assumed by the far right to be Muslim she she's not in fact she you know she her family right. fled a Muslim theocracy but um, but because she's from Iran they they assume she's Muslim and she gets this um, yeah huge level of, of hatred and now yeah requires more security and that situation seems to uh, be the status quo now that if you're if you're a uh, uh, particularly if you're a woman of color um, in yeah. politics you're going to get you're just going to get this vitriolic hate and, and potentially you know violence which will unfortunately deter more women of color from putting themselves in that position absolutely yeah it's this it's this uh silencing effect this uh chilling effect uh to silence people coming from the free speech warriors <laughs> yeah so often yeah, yeah. And, i mean with the with the uh, the young tafati maori candidate um a lot of these uh free speech warrior types were really quick to start saying oh where's the evidence where's the, give us the police report was her home really invaded? And and now uh, mm. now they're saying there was um, there've been multiple people going to her home, and a, a supporter of the the main sort of opposition right wing party went to her home and then uh, was trespassed. And he's now saying that um, he just went because he was impressed by a young woman getting into politics and he wanted to wish her well. And it's like, well, why go to her home and do that? <laughs> That's Wait. when her home had previously been invaded, yeah. Are you saying that the the politician went to her home of the opposition party? Yeah, the- well, he's, he's, uh, he's not like a MP or a candidate or anything. He's just a, uh, a party supporter. But he, he showed up at her home supposedly just to wish her well. Uh, Yeah, right. But this was after her home had already been uh, broken into and a threatening letter left. So it just seems like if he really was there to wish her well, um, yeah, didn't read the room. Uh, But it more more seems like a a kind of intimidation thing. I I mean, I'm only speculating, but um, well, when I saw the media reports about him being there just to wish them because the the national party which he's part of has told him not to talk to media and instead of you know issuing statements and things um and it reminded me so much of how lee williams the man who accosted me at my workplace after that incident particularly when there was uh pushback you know, when there was like news articles about it and things he would talk about how he was he was so polite and he just wanted to have a you know a friendly chat with his camera pointing in my face and things it's like you don't you don't turn up to somebody's workplace and give a fake name to have a polite mm-hmm. friendly chat you know and i think 
you know, you don't turn up to the home of a candidate who's already been targeted with uh, threats and intimidation just to wish her well. You know, if you want to wish her yeah. well, you know, send a message on social media or whatever, or yeah. publicly say, you know, we politically disagree, but good on her for giving it a go. Because this woman, uh, she's, I think, the youngest candidate standing for, for parliament. She's 21. Um, and... Um, you know, there's a chance that this uh, National Party supporter really was pleased to see a young woman getting involved, but if that's the case, he really <laughs> went about it the wrong way, and I, I'm, I'm dubious about this yeah. well-wisher story. <laughs> it's just that plausible deniability that they like to hide behind, yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. And you're right, it's a very Tommy Robinson thing, too, like how the guy came into your workplace, but then, you know, emphasized that he was speaking politely. Mm. That's what Tommy Robinson did when he um, he went into the Quilliam offices, right? Mm. Funny, because Majid Nawaz, the head of Quilliam, is now totally... Uh, on the right wing track mm. but this was like a brief period where I think someone in the organization had very very mildly called out his racism and echoes of like white identity politics and he lost his shit mm. but yeah we're the snowflakes <laughs> so the Christchurch shooting mm. that was really horrifying even sitting all the way from here, like, it was shocking beyond belief because, you know, just like when someone goes into a place of worship, people are so unguarded. They're, it's just, it's so, I mean, it's cruel anyway, but it just seems like this extra layer of cruelty mm -hmm. and just really struck a personal note because so many of my loved ones are you know, they go to the mosque, they're Muslim they practice and it could just be anyone just super, super, super scary Yeah, it was a real, I think uh, awakening to a lot of people here that you know, we're not outside of this global rise in, in the far right which is particularly Islamophobic in, in its current manifestation. Because um, I think while while people here would have seen, obviously, like, you know, the Trump campaign happening and him talking about, you know, banning Muslims from entering the U.S. and some people maybe a little more um, politically engaged with international affairs might have been seeing the far right winning seats in parliaments and in European countries and, and things. But I, I think people here probably felt that we were a bit isolated from that global trend and we we're a bit outside it. And then this event, I think, really showed that, no, we're not outside it. Um, there was there was a bit of an attempt in the early days afterwards, in the aftermath, to um, say, oh, well, this the shooter, he was he was Australian and, and he was mm. a loner. He's not really one of us, um, you know, as an anomaly. And one of the reasons I really started with my activism was was pointing out that um, there are there are plenty of people here who hold those same views as the shooter. I mean, there was a, a white supremacist group called uh, the Dominion Movement that started up here, and they went into a hiatus, like literally within hours of the shooting. And I think that was perhaps some of the young men realizing that what they'd gotten into was, you know, actually pretty serious and was now resulting in you know the deaths of 
of, uh, of Muslim migrants and, well, not all of the migrants, but of, of Muslims living in, in New Zealand. But perhaps for others, it was more about the fear of what the state might do to crack down on the far right now, which was just kind of slowly growing in the shadows without much of a pushback because because I think a lot of people thought, oh, it couldn't, couldn't happen here. You know, we're not like that. You know, we're not the US. We're not hungry. We're not wherever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my videos and writing and then culminating in the book um, had been very much, you know, hey, this is here. You know, we do have, we do have this uh, far right. And the mosque shooting wasn't this anomaly. It was uh, a symptom of of a, a global far right movement that we're we're not immune from. Yeah. Yeah. And you you knew someone who went to that mosque. On that yeah, uh, well, um, you know, uh, New Zealand's pretty small, and Christchurch is is you know a big city by New Zealand standards, but really pretty small. So everyone sort of had some connection to to somebody there. I, um, you know, I say in the book, I I called my father after the shooting happened, mostly to see if he'd heard from some a Muslim family in their neighbourhood who. Uh, they sort of know we had a we had a big earthquake here in Christchurch back in 2011, um, and mm-hmm. in the aftermath of a natural disaster, people kind of get to know their neighbours a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this Muslim family in my parents' neighbourhood who bring them food every eat. Um, and I said, oh, "Have you? Do you know if they're okay?" And turns out they would normally be normally be at the mosque every Friday, but that week they weren't. And everyone everyone sitting in the row where they normally sat was was now dead. Uh, so wow. that, yeah, that really hammered at home. And then I had another friend from Egypt originally, and now now living in Australia, but she was married in that mosque, and she was just posting on Facebook asking, you know, has anyone heard anything? We're trying to get word from, you know, my my uh, father-in-law, and um, she posted a a photo of him, and. I realised that this is just one of these things about New Zealand being so small that he was um, he was someone who'd been a, a student of mine when I taught in adult and community education a few years back, and he wasn't someone I knew well, but he was he was someone I'd encountered with, and, and I said, oh, I, you know, I, did your father used to do the free computer skills classes in, in Bishopdale? And she, uh, she said, yes, they did. And I said, oh, I I I didn't realise this, but I taught him there, and. Um, and yeah, then then the confirmation came out that that he had died as well. And um, yeah, oh, and um, my my day job is in IT. I work with um, work with a lot of people, uh, you know, from South Asia. And so um, colleagues of mine had uh, you know had people they knew who were there. And um, you know, a lot a lot of people you know lost lost coworkers or neighbours or you know it, it was a, an event that didn't just affect the Muslim community, but really affected the city as a whole because, you know, everyone who, everyone who went to that mosque, they, they you know, they, somebody knew them. They were somebody's classmate or co-worker or, or friend. Um, yeah, and there was there was a uh, something that was quite encouraging was, you know, there was this, this real outpouring of support after the shooting, just through donations. There was huge amounts of money raised um, for the survivors. Um, and you know, we saw a really positive side of the country afterwards as well. But we've, you know, we've also seen the, you know, the the negative side of it. Um, Lee Williams, who I've I've talked about a bit, he he only started his YouTube channel about a month before the shooting happened, but he had been speaking at a rally 
in the central square in Christchurch, so you know, a kilometre or two from the mosque, um, four weeks before about you know how the UN migration compact was supposedly going to flood the country with migrants from you know mostly mostly Muslim migrants. And in the description of this video, he had asked people to get out and do your bit to save your country from Islamization. And the shooter wouldn't have seen this video. It didn't encourage the shooting. Uh, but the fact that this was there like just a few weeks before meant that he was one of the people who was investigated by police after the shooting. And he made a video about that, which then went viral, and he built most of his audience from portraying himself as a victim um, for, uh, and he said, the police asked me if I was a Trump supporter, you know, and, and it's like, well, maybe they did, but they're, you know, the reason they're there is you told people to save their country from Islamization, and then four weeks yeah. later, somebody murdered 51 Muslims. Um, in the video, but behind him also attending this rally is a, a local white supremacist who, who's quite infamous, and he was the first person to be arrested for sharing the live stream footage of the of the shooting because that's been that's been banned in New Zealand. It's been deemed an objectionable mm. publication, and he had he had sent this footage to a friend of his, asking him to add crosshairs and a kill count to make it look like a video game, um, and he was there in that video as well. And so, but these these people, the you know Phil Arps guy and and Lee Williams, there they've you know they've built a following and they've use this tragedy to you know portray themselves as as victims of a of an overzealous state trying to silence criticism of right. criticism of mass migration or criticism of, of Islam so while while we saw um, we saw the really good side of New Zealand in the aftermath we've, we you know we've seen this far right fringe as well use this event to promote themselves and to grow unfortunately yeah i mean it's it's such a lose lose situation in so many of these cases with these far-right content creators because either they get the support that they're looking for and they get the support that they're looking for but if people don't give them the venues or they get shut down somehow they also use that to get the support mm. you know what i mean yeah. either yeah. way they are going to make a buck off of it mm. whether they've been silenced or you know or not totally yeah and yeah. it's it's like hard to know what's the best way to handle it yeah i mean it's uh it's an issue that we're we're grappling with and we haven't really as a society i think found a way to handle this uh particularly with you know social media um, for yeah. a long time you know the the idea of like no platform for fascists wasn't this kind of uh, radical left-wing view but it was like the policy of like the bbc after yeah. after the second world war and and most mainstream media would you know not give a platform to to the far right uh, but then with social media we've found that they can that well they've found they can just have their own platform they can just start a youtube channel or a facebook page and when uh, when these things get uh, not even when they get taken down but when they get you know shadow banned or not algorithmically promoted then they'll cry about their free speech being under threat and and you will often have you know these so-called free speech advocates talking about how how terrible it is that youtube has deplatformed this person because while they don't agree with them they like you don't you know, I don't think people have an inherent right to have a YouTube channel or a Facebook page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. Um, but um, we're having this big, as a society, we're having this big discussion about about free speech where 
for any kind of any kind of censorship of uh, some of these far right voices is decry as an attack on free speech, and we seem to have lost this idea that, well, uh, among some sectors of society, where we've lost this idea that free speech doesn't mean the right to a platform, and just as somebody like Lee Williams can't go to Radio New Zealand or Television New Zealand and say you have to give me the uh, you have to give me a half hour slot to rant about mass migration um you know he'd be laughed out of the room uh but youtube could say yeah, actually we're not going to give you a platform to spread this and then then free speech advocates will say oh this is censorship this is terrible it's like no it's yeah. just a just a private company deciding what kind of content they want to host and you know you, there are probably valid criticisms to, to have of that and i do see some you know coming out of uh, i know a few people on the political left who call themselves like free speech absolutists and they they feel that oh you know if we if we if we allow if we allow these uh, private corporations to decide what kind of content will be allowed on their platforms um, that could be bad for the left i'm like well Potentially, but uh, the left has not really built anything from from social media the way that the far right has, and maybe yeah. maybe it's a, a lesser evil to allow allow these uh, private platforms to exercise some discretion as to what kind of content they want to be allowed on their on their platforms. Well, just look at the way that they're emboldened when there are no restrictions, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, they use the restrictions to play victim and become murderers and stuff, but then eventually, it, I hope, it dies down. Like, I mean, we see what happened to Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, these guys are nowhere near as powerful as they used to be because mm. of restrictions implemented on them. Yeah, deplatforming de- works. Yeah, mm. I think so. Yeah. But mm. in the short term, it can seem very disheartening when they take that deplatforming and get more attention out of it. But um, like Peterson, Jordan Peterson fucking does that all the time. Oh, yeah. There's no stopping that guy whether he has all the platforms in the world or whether there are restrictions he will use anything and everything and he has such a large following um, Mm. for his unhinged like every two second tweets that uh, like he can just coast off of that doesn't matter Mm. what and now that Elon owns like one of the most significant platforms like just look at how he's emboldened white nationalists Mm. it's it's pretty horrifying the times that we're living in definitely yeah yeah um one thing I read in your uh in your book is one of the insults that these far right people sent to you was that you looked like the type to pee sitting down (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah yeah um. which which is so funny to me because like i don't have a penis uh but you know it it must be great to be able to stand up and pee especially at public toilets i mean it's certainly convenient yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i would definitely use that all the time and um but you know when you're at home i like I would feel like the splatter would just be a deterring factor to me, you know? Like, why is it so taboo for guys to sit and pee? Like, I feel like... Yeah, I mean, it was a... I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think much about it at the time, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's one of these insults... Like, so many of these insults uh, and so much of the, the way that a lot of these people talk 
really highlights the anxieties that they have around masculinity. Mm. Um, and that's, I'm not sure how much that emerges as a theme in, in fear, uh, but I mean, it's, it's certainly something you could write. <laughs> write a whole book about the, mm-hmm. the masculine anxieties of the far right. There's your next book for you. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I do quote this in the book. Actually, a video that uh, Lee Williams made outlining what uh, what he believes. He believed that there was a deliberate plan to emasculate men in the West, uh, and this would facilitate the Great Replacement because you know we wouldn't, you know, us white men would be able to fight back against the uh, hordes of uh, non-white migrants that would be coming, and this. this this sort of sounds ridiculous, but you see echoes of this throughout the far right because they, they, they talk about how you know soy is emasculating, and mm-hmm, you know so mm-hmm. I get called a, a soy boy, and, and it's the same people who said that I look looked like the type to pee sitting down <laughs> were, were saying things like, "Well, after next time I'm in Christchurch, invite him for a soy latte," and it's like. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> but, 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 then, but if you know that there's this whole conspiracy yeah. about soy being emasculating, then then it, then it makes sense. And there's uh, this this particular group that was pushing that was a. a really strange outfit called uh, Wagus Christi, who saw themselves as kind of a monastic order of uh, Christians who are really into, like, physical fitness and bodybuilding. And they had all these uh, weird ideas around uh, semen retention and, uh, you know, that... uh, Oh, the the no-fap thing. The no-fap guy, yeah. And they had had a kind of ritual where they'd confess to each other about masturbating and then then flog each other as punishment. (laughs) And, Sounds um, kinky. Like. Yeah, I, I, it's very homoerotic for a group that was, you know, very anti-LGBT and very, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, pro-masculine. But but it was like these these muscular men going to the forest and flogging each other. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of uh, the Righteous Gemstones. Have you ever watched that? I've not watched that. No. Oh, it's so good. You should. It's it's like I'll check that out. making fun of like these hardcore like mega church evangelists and there's a lot of homoeroticism. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. But yeah, the the peeing sitting down. I mean, I don't see what's wrong with peeing sitting down. But maybe because yeah. that's that's because I don't pee standing up. But <laughs> another one, another one that I've remembered just now is uh, on one of the one of the YouTube videos I made. Somebody commented, "My wife's son loved this," and it's like that's a weird way to phrase things. And I was, uh, I think, on on Facebook or Twitter, I was explaining to people that why not just say stepson? Mm. And it's because because these men feel that. You know, raising another man's child is an inherently emasculating thing to do. So, this this troll was like trying to be like, "Oh yes, my wife's son was like, this is your audience. You know, it's cucks who are raising other men's children. It's like, oh. and it's like for for the average person, yeah. that's not they're not going to see that that's an insult. And someone needs to think like, oh, this guy's stepson really liked the video, but he phrased it weirdly. Um, and I've got to kind of explain the mentality of these people, which which I think they don't realize that most people don't have these same anxieties around masculinity and aren't, aren't insulted by like <laughs> stepsons and soy lattes. And you've got to kind of explain this weird world that they live in. Yeah, it's really funny because a lot of people wouldn't get their insult and uh, yeah. it would go to waste. Yeah. And it's funny, okay, so these are like far-right Christians that are saying this stuff, but then 
I hate to keep bringing up the new atheists, but mm. I don't know if you know uh, Peter Bogosian. No, no, not familiar with him. Well, good. <laughs> don't look him up either. Okay. But um, he used to be, well, he's now gone big on the anti-CRT and... Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. So he used to have this, well, he once, like, tweeted something about, he's a professor too, or he was a professor. I don't know if he, maybe he was fired. I can't remember. But anyways, he was at least at one point a, a professor and um, considered himself an intellectual. And this is what he was tweeting stuff like, uh, you know, oh, it's like third wave feminists have like a weak body habitus. And it's like the same theme, right? Like why are you associating a body type with male feminists? Or Yeah. He was saying mm. like third wave male feminists have a weak body habitus. And, um, yeah, I don't know what feminism has to do with developing your body type. or It's mm. just so strange, right? That these things are yeah, echoed among, like, weird, fashy academics as well. Yeah, and similar to um, some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, like, I've been... I've been so seeped in this to be kind of a little bit immune to it. But, yeah, stepping back and, and looking at this from the perspective of an outsider, it's all just bizarre. Like this, you know, this like, uh, you know, male feminists have this body type. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. That, uh, but, yeah, people get, people in these, in these spaces, I guess, just get so into that stuff that it becomes like a, you know, normalized to them. And, um, and they, you know, forget that this isn't the way most of the world thinks. And this <laughs> yeah, is, and, like, yeah. you and I also understand it, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, well, look, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, and uh, thank you so much for telling us more about New Zealand. I honestly, You're welcome. you know, don't know any of the influencers, the far-right influencers from New Zealand, and uh, I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> Uh, lovely chatting with you and hopefully we can chat again and uh, good Certainly. luck on the elections and hopefully get some good good results well yeah if we uh, i think at this point if we don't get any conspiracy theorists winning seats in parliament i'll be i'll be happy even if we get a change in government which you know I, is not my preferred party but if we can if we can keep the conspiracy theorists out that's kind of the low bar that i've seen yeah today. yeah quite a low bar <laughs> yeah all right let's see by the time we release this episode uh the election should have happened right when is it again uh next week uh week yeah. today so yeah, yeah. Then definitely so uh Hopefully there'll be no conspiracy theorists winning seats. Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, it looks like they didn't keep the conspiracy theorists from winning seats, which, uh, you know, seemed like a pretty low bar to me at the time of this conversation, but not low enough, I guess. Um, I was just Googling more about the election and the win, and uh, some of the headlines are looking pretty terrifying. Here's one from The Guardian. Bumpy roads ahead. New Zealand's incoming PM set to lead a three-headed anti-woke government. 
I assume that is referring to the coalition of right-wing parties. Um, And yeah, here's a little paragraph from that same article. All three parties share a reflexive distaste for anything that could be described as quote-unquote woke. They are all uncomfortable or at least profess to be with any kind of government program that seeks to redress past wrongs against the indigenous Maori by giving them some kind of separate service like the Maori Health Authority. They all believe the criminal justice system is too soft on criminals. They will all be happy to invest in roads over public transport or cycling infrastructure. So there it is, not sounding wonderful. Anyway, let's hear what Byron had to say after the elections. Here's a voice note he sent me. Well, we came close to not leading a single conspiracy theorist to Parliament, but one of them just snuck in with a small party as the eighth person on their list. Uh, That's a woman who had been in a telegram channel called Nuremberg 2.0, where journalists and public health officials and others were identified to be tried for supposed crimes against humanity. Arguably, there's a second conspiracy theorist as well, um, elected in the Hamilton East election for the major centre-right party as a former city councillor who had some dubious views about fluoridation and when a public meeting about 15-minute cities was disrupted by conspiracy theorists, he remained to engage with them when other city councillors had uh, departed the meeting. So I guess we're in for an interesting few years looking at um, what those two will get up to in Parliament. I feel like rather than a sharp turn to the right, the new government is more like slamming on the brakes. Slamming the brakes in terms of progress, that is. So after the mosque shooting happened, there was a Royal Commission inquiry that looked at, you know, how could this happen and what should be done. And that uh, Royal Commission made a few recommendations, including updating our laws around hate speech. We have a law that's been on the books since 1993 um, against inciting racial disharmony. Um, It was suggested that this be amended to include not just race, but religion, potentially, you know, sexuality, gender identity, disability, and so on. One of the three right-wing parties in our new coalition government um, has been very opposed to, you know, any any hate speech laws and wants to repeal the 1993 law that's there and also wants to abolish the Human Rights Commission, which means we won't have a government department that is looking into these issues and speaking out on them. Um, so if that were to happen, that would that would be uh, quite something that would make, you know, countering extremism more difficult and counter, countering hate and racism more difficult. Likewise, the World Commission recommended the founding of a, a research centre for excellence, which exists now. I'm an associate of that. Um, and they provide scholarships to people um, researching extremism and radicalisation and, and so on. And I think if there were to be less funding for that sort of thing, not necessarily on ideological grounds, but just on a more you know right-leaning neoliberal government that doesn't like the the state funding academics and and so forth, then that's going to be a problem too because we're going to get less research into these these important issues. So in that sense, I feel yeah, handbrake more than a more than a sharp turn to the right. But of those parties making up the coalition, there one of them um, wants to have a referendum on the pre- uh, principles of Te Treaty O Waitangi, which is the treaty signed between the Indigenous people here and the British Empire. It's the basis of a lot of law here. And uh, 
That's all for now. See you all next time for episode three. Thank you for listening to this mini-series on the global far right. And thank you for supporting the show. It's because of listeners like you that I can continue to produce specialized content like this. Do get in touch if you think you or someone you know would be a good guest for the series. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. No Ian Mangoes. There are still a lot of countries I'm looking to cover. 